Let's continue to worship, shall we, by turning in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. And if you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention of one of the ushers, and they'll be certain to get one into your hands. Revelation 20. I don't know about you, but uh, I turned to Becky right at the end of that worship time that we just had, and I said, like, that was the Revelation set. You know what I'm talking about? Like, if you've been with us for this, this study of the book of Revelation the last year and a half or so, you hopefully recognize some of the words of many of those psalms, came, songs came right out of the book of Revelation, from Revelation 1 and going forward, not to mention so many of the concepts. And I love that. I love how the Lord ties those things together and uses the gifts of so many on our worship team in order to do so. Revelation chapter 20, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6. I'm thinking that this is going to take us in two parts, these six verses, because as always, there's so much here. Is not the Word of God like a, an, an un, a bottomless depth from which to draw the truths of, of God and, and apply them in our lives? It's so much is. And I trust that as we work our way through this, you will be edified and sanctified as much as I have been and as much as I pray that I will be. All right, Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6. Having talked about what happens when we die the last three weeks and how it intersects with the end-time events, we now return to those end-time events. And the last three chapters here, three chapters, mark this, three chapters of some of the most glorious promises, glorious realities in all the Bible. True, true, glorious promises and glorious realities. Confirming, at least for believers, confirming that our best days are ahead. You ever had somebody say that to you? Like in the middle of a difficult time, I've, I've had it said to me several times in the course of my life, midst of dark days or something, they'll say, Rob, your best days are ahead. Your best days are ahead. And I thought to myself, and maybe you're with me on this, that cannot be true. There's just no way. I couldn't see beyond the darkness in front of my face, let alone the light of tomorrow. Your best days are ahead, I was assured. Well, listen, let me assure you right now, no matter what you're going through, no matter the storm of your life and the stormy seas through which you travel, your best days are ahead if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Hands down. In fact, I don't care if you're in the midst of your golden days, glory years, or however else you want to describe them, you have far, far better days ahead. Glorious days. But before we get to them, before we get to these glorious truths here in verses 1 to 6, I want to remind you of a few things. I want to remind you of a few things in order to help you keep it all straight as this has spanned over a year and a half now, our study of Revelation, and remind you of a few things so that you can get the most out of it. A few reminders. Here's the first. Remember the outline. Remember the outline. The outline of Revelation, of course. Written by the Apostle John around 95 AD, chapters 1 to 3 are letters to churches. That is, seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, that represent all churches across all time, including our church. Letters to churches. Chapters 4 and 5 speak of worship in heaven, both in the future and now. And then, chapters 6 to 19, the bulk of the book, of the book, the bulk of the book, 
There you go. Speak of the great tribulation. We spent an inordinate amount of time there, a future period, most likely seven years, during which the world will suffer death, destruction, and deceit, while the church will suffer persecution, apostasy, and martyrdom. Chapters 6 to 19. And then chapter 20, the one at hand, millennium and judgment, and chapters 21 and 22, the eternal state, the new heavens and new earth on which we will dwell with God forever and ever. If you can remember that, if you can remember that outline, you'll go a long way toward remembering and understanding this book. You'll go a long way once you've long forgotten all of these messages. You'll go a long way to resurrecting those memories and refiguring it out for yourself. That's the first reminder. Second is the timeline. Remember the timeline. That is the order of end times events, at least generally speaking, when they happen and how they relate to one another. And so, as you've seen this before, right now is the church age. From the cross of Christ, his resurrection, to the return of Jesus at the end of the great tribulation. His return, when he raptures the believers up from the grave and off the earth to immediately return with us to the earth, fight the battle of Armageddon, and then begin the millennial reign, the church age, ending with the great tribulation there. Then... At the beginning of the millennial reign, all of this happening in a very tight order of sequence, it seems to be, in the scriptures. Then he's going to bind Satan and begin this glorious millennium reign on earth. Millennium simply meaning a thousand years. The old Latin word, a thousand years, millennium. No mystery there. He's going to begin by binding Satan and then reigning on earth for a thousand years, a peaceful and prosperous time for everyone, as we're going to see in the next few weeks. At the end of that, at the end of the millennium, Satan is going to be released for a little while, it says. We'll see that this morning. Released to deceive the nations one last time for a final battle. A final battle that's going to result in his final defeat and his banishment to the lake of fire, just like the false prophet and the Antichrist were banished to the lake of fire at the battle of Armageddon. He's going to be banished to the lake of fire. Following that, there's going to be the great white throne judgment. All of this, once again, happening in a tight sequence, the scriptures seem to indicate. The great white throne judgment when unbelievers are resurrected and also condemned to the lake of fire. Meanwhile, believers are going to be ushered into the new heavens and the new earth a place of perfect bliss and perfect holiness where we will dwell once again with God in the eternal state forever and ever. That's called classical premillennialism. Classical premillennialism. Or more technical, technically, post-tribulational premillennialism. Post-tribulational because it indicates that we are resurrected as believers at Christ's return at the end of the tribulation, post-tribulational pre-millennialism. It's not the only view of the end times. It's not. But it was the predominant view in the early church for the first four centuries after Christ, for those who were closest to 
his teaching and closest to those who learned directly from him and those who learned from them. It was the predominant view. More importantly, I believe that it best connects the most dots in the Bible, the most passages regarding the end times with the least amount of problems. Most dots with the least problems. Remember the timeline. And third, remember the pitfalls. Remember the outline, the timeline, and the pitfalls. Hopefully, these bring back some memories. That This isn't the first time that many of you have heard these things. The pitfalls of studying the end times in general, like the pitfall of obsessing on details. Like, don't get distracted from the message by obsessing on minutia. The, men, the, the message to hold fast. Don't get distracted from that by the minutia, the things that some of which we can know and understand and some of which we just have to hold loosely to. Second, remember the pitfall of obsessing on dates. Obsessing on dates. You know, when things are actually going to happen. If I had a nickel for every time I've heard somebody say a particular date and put a particular date to something, I'd be rich. And don't fall into that pitfall. Don't go there. Jesus said nobody knows. Nobody knows. And third, remember the pitfall of obsessing on current events. Obsessing on current events. What I call newspaper eschatology. Always trying to match what you see in the news with what you see in Revelation. It seems like every single time something significant happens in the Middle East, a self-appointed guru will hop on whatever internet aspect or portal that they can, and they will claim that that's what the Bible is talking about. Be wary of that pitfall. It's a rabbit hole with no bottom and a lot of speculation. Remember the pitfalls. And then last, remember the purpose. Remember the purpose of studying all of this. First is to prepare us, not scare us. Prepare us, not scare us. The purpose of this is to prepare us to hold fast. That's why I, I frame the entire theme with those two words, hold fast. It's to prepare us to stand firm and keep the faith no matter what's to come. Whether we're alive when the events of the great tribulation ensue or whether we're long dead. It's to prepare us to stand firm and keep the faith. Or as the psalmist said it, be strong and let your heart take courage. Be strong and let your heart take courage. That's the purpose of this. It's not to be scared because of some uncertainties or difficulties that are coming down the pipeline. And then the second part of the purpose, it's meant to unite us, not divide us. It's meant to, meant to unite us, not divide us. Whether you're a mill, post mill, pre mill, or no idea mill, like keep all this in perspective. Keep it in perspective. Argue your position if you must, but do so with a humble disposition, a genuine desire to learn, and a commitment to show grace grace. Because the last thing Revelation is intended to do is divide us. The Apostle John wrote it under the inspiration of the Spirit to unite the churches in his day so that they would indeed be able to stand firm, so that they could be shoulder to shoulder and arm in arm. They could be supportive to one another back to back and not fall by the wayside, not be distracted, and not be discouraged intended to unite us. A few reminders to remember. All right. 
With that in mind, let's see what these three chapters and these first few verses have in store for us. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. You follow along. I'm going to read it through. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, there's a whole bunch to see and sort out there, and it's going to take a few weeks to do it, so just bear with me in all of this. I so wish that I could just do a mind dump and, and get it all across to you in, in, in just a, a few short seconds or a few short minutes, but I'm unable to do that. Maybe the Holy Spirit can do that with you. I'm, I, he can do that. I don't know if he's going to do that. It's not how he usually works as we study the Bible and absorb the truths therein. So, so bear with on all this. There's, there's a lot to sort out. But the obvious topic here, the obvious one, is the thousand-year time period. Did you see it over and over again? The millennium, mentioned five times in six verses. Five times in six verses. Now, whether it's a literal thousand years or a very long time, we don't know. Just like whether seven years of a great tribulation is literal seven years or, or just a, a perfect time period, we're, we're not certain. It's apocalyptic imagery. It's apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation is. Uh, meant to, as I've said before, meant to both reveal and conceal. Reveal the truth to those who have the Holy Spirit within them and, and conceal it from those who are in opposition to the Lord and all that he's going to do. And so it's apocalyptic literature whether it's a thousand years or a very long time, we don't know. The point is the nature of the millennium. The point is not the exact length of it. The point is the nature of this thousand years. That is, who it is, what it is, who's involved, and when. The nature of the millennium. Unfortunately, that's about where the agreement ends in church world, uh, that the main thrust of these six verses, at least, is the millennium. There is almost as much confusion and disagreement over the millennium as there is the Great Tribulation. Almost. For instance, some people say that there isn't one. They, they just flat out say there, there isn't a literal millennium. Rather, it's spiritual in nature and symbolizes the church age as Christ reigns from heaven 
right now. It, the view is called amillennialism. Amillennialism. Ah, there, simply meaning not. Amillennialism. To say that there's not going to be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And I so respect so, so many people who hold that view. I do. I do. I do. Others say, no, no. There's going to be a millennium, but it's not going to include Jesus. And that's called post-millennialism. Post-millennialism. It's the belief that things will get better and better as the gospel is embraced by more and more, leading to a golden age of the church and worldwide blessing. After which, after that golden age of the church, because the gospel is going to be received and embraced more and more, they believe, after that, Jesus returns. Hence, the word post, post Millennial. He's going to return, in this particular view, at the end of the millennium. He's not going to be on earth for his reign. Now, to those two views, one of which I respect, the other of which I feel like is very, very shaky, the post-millennial view, but to both of those, I would say there's some merit. There's some merit. But I believe that the clearest teaching in Scripture describes a pre-millennial return of Christ to earth. A pre-millennial return. A return that leads to a literal time of peace and prosperity for a thousand years. It's called premillennialism. Hello, pre. Because Jesus is going to return pre the millennium. And it's a view that I'm going to explain in these next several weeks because once again... I think that it connects the most dots in Scripture with the best clarity and the least problems. All right, so let's start with this. The millennium is the future reign of Christ on earth. The millennium is the future reign of Christ on earth. Four parts, four very important parts. And don't discount the importance of each and every one. Oh, do not, do not sit there and think, well, this is just like some future ethereal thing. It's not really real to my life right now. Nothing could be further from the truth. Like you don't think that way of an hour from now that it doesn't really, you know, what's going to happen in an hour from now that it doesn't really apply to you. You don't think of that about tomorrow that it doesn't really apply to you. And so, you know, what do you really care nor should you think about the millennium because just as an hour from now is certain unless the Lord should choose to return and just as tomorrow is certain unless the Lord should choose to return, the millennium is going to be certain because the Lord will return. It applies. It applies. I don't discount the importance of each element of the millennium, even though they're future. I don't discount the soul-fueling power of future grace, because that's what the millennium is. It is grace upon grace. 
It is undeserved favor to the nth degree. It's a foretaste literally of glory divine, the eternal state. It's almost like God is like, man, you cannot handle the eternal state all at once going from here to there. I need to bridge the gap and show you just how glorious it's going to be. I don't know. I don't know the exact reason for the millennium. Nobody does. But that certainly could be one of them. Don't discount the soul-fueling power of future grace. Don't discount the soul-sustaining power of future glory. It sustains us. Every now and then, I will call Becky on the way home. Every time on the way home, I text her. I say, hey, Siri, text Becky Willie on my way. She reads it back to me. Send it. Yes, yes, done. Good. But every now and then, I'll call her and I'll say, sweetie, what are we doing tonight? Or if it's a Friday evening, what, what, are we, what are we doing this weekend? Why do I ask such a thing, other than the fact that I'm a little kid at heart and, and want her so much to have some sort of a plan, which is probably my responsibility, husbands take note. But, but so, I so much want something to look forward to. I, I, want, I want something to, to, to spur me on. That's what, when, when I have something to look forward to, I'm sure you're the same way. It spurs you on, it, it fuels you, even though it's future even though it's future, even though it's not right now, the hope of it, the hope of whatever's going to go on, going out to dinner or having a night at home, whatever it is, the hope of it fills me and fuels me. Same is true for graduation for a student. School is starting. It's already on the minds of those of you who are 8th graders or 12th graders or college graduates or, or, or seniors in college. Like, it's already on your mind. And it's, it's soul-fueling. It's soul-sustaining, graduation is. Or marriage for a couple. It fuels the soul. How much more the millennium? How much more should it be with the millennium? Like if you truly believe it, it will increase your anticipation like no other. It will reinforce your hope and it will buoy your soul, giving you even more to live for than you already have. We think so much in terms of living for the Lord right now and living for heaven later, when really it should be living for the eternal state later, the new heavens and the new earth. But in between that, adding all the more fuel to our fire should be the hope and the glory and the grace of the millennium. It's that big and that good. A future reality for which to hold fast for sure. You do not want to miss it. And this text is the pillar passage for it. Right here in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6. Pillar passage as in the primary text on which the millennium stands or falls. You know, like a, a roof is supported by pillars in a big building anyway. You see at least three of them here. We removed one, by the way, because it was right here when we bought the building. So we put in this massive beam up here. It delayed our, do you remember that, Dan? It delayed our construction for months and months and months. These pillars and this beam that are supported by that pillar and one in the wall, these pillars support the roof, the roof. That's the same idea as a pillar passage in the Bible. It's a key passage without which the doctrine or the belief would fall. Revelation 21 to 6. Maybe we should just write it on one of these pillars. It's the primary text because no other text mentions a thousand years. No other text in the Bible mentions 
a thousand years. They mention a rule and reign of Christ, for sure. I'll show you some. But not a thousand year rule and reign. So it's critical that we understand it. And the crux of it is found in the second part of verse 4 and the second part of verse 6. Check it out. The last sentence of verse 4. It says, They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They, referring to believers, we will be resurrected at Christ's return to reign with him right here on earth. Read the sentence again. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. We're going to be with Jesus as he reigns. We're going to be reigning with him. We're going to lead with him. We're going to govern with him. That's the idea of reigning. That's what a king does when he reigns. He, he leads and he governs. It's just like Isaiah said in his prophecy of old. The government shall be upon his shoulder. That's the millennial reign. It's an allusion to the millennial reign. The government shall be upon his shoulder. He's going to reign. The future reign, future reign of Christ on earth. And just in case we miss it in verse 4, John says it again in the second part of verse 6. They will be priests of God and of Christ. Believers will, that is. They will be representatives and ambassadors. Priests, that's what priests did in days of old. That's how they're described. They're ambassadors. They're, they're mediating a message between God and the people and people and God and so on. They will be priests of God, believers will, in the millennium. And they will, here it is, reign with him, with him, for a thousand years. And so Jesus will reign as the chief shepherd and we will be under shepherds. Don't get that backwards. Jesus will reign as the chief shepherd and we will reign as under shepherds. It's yet another reason that this is a pillar passage on the millennium. We will reign with him. But it's not the only passage. It's the only passage that mentions the thousand years, but it's not the only passage that references the millennium. 450 years before Christ, the prophet Zechariah also spoke of it. Zechariah chapter 14. He said, among other things, the Lord will be king over all the earth. You see it? The Lord will be king over all the earth. And then a few verses later, everyone shall go up year after year to worship the king the Lord of hosts, the king who reigns over all the earth. Sounds a lot like Revelation 20, doesn't it? And then Psalm 72 is similar, written by Solomon some 900 years before Christ. Speaking of a future king, he says, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. A future reign of a future king over all the earth. It's a reference to the millennium. And then there's the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 to 25. He says, for as in, as in Adam all die, that is connected to Adam, we die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Connected to Jesus, in relationship with Jesus, we shall all be made alive. We shall be resurrected. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong 
to Christ. And so Paul is lay, laying out a, a sequence here of what is to transpire over the course of, of redemptive history from the cross onward. He's laying out a sequence, and he starts with Jesus. He was the first to rise again, Paul says. He's the, the guarantee that more would follow. That's the idea of first fruits. Just as Jesus rose again, those who belong to him, those who are connected to him, will also rise again when he returns. Verse 24. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after, don't miss that word, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so Jesus rose again first, and then we, we are going to rise again someday, Paul says. And after we are resurrected at Christ's return, he will reign in order to vanquish every foe for good, destroy every rule and every authority and power, as it says. And then the end will come when Jesus delivers the kingdom to the Father. It's a sequence that Paul lays out for redemptive history and redemptive future. He will vanquish all the foes for good when he rules the nations with a rod of iron during the millennium. Three passages in both the New and the Old Testament that reinforce and corroborate the pillar passage of Revelation 20, the future millennial reign of Christ on earth. Let that fill and fuel your soul. Now, with that foundation laid of those four cornerstones, if you will, we can start sorting out the parts of all of this and building on it, starting with the restraint of Satan. The millennium is the future reign of Christ on earth, starting with the capture and imprisonment of Satan. Look at verses 1, and 1 to 3 again. After describing Christ's second coming in the battle of Armageddon in chapter 19, John says in verse 1 of 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand, again, this is, this is imagery, this is meant to be a description, not a picture, okay? I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. The bottomless pit, referring to hell or some aspect of it, and the key and chain indicating God's absolute power to restrain. So we've got hell or some aspect of it, this bottomless pit, and God's absolute power to restrain, given to an angel on his behalf. And he, the angel, seized the dragon, verse 2. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, leaving absolutely no doubt as to who he's talking about. He seized him and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. You think he's trying to get something across to us? shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. 
So there's going to come a day when Jesus not only defeats and subdues those who are instruments of Satan, the Antichrist and the false prophet and so on, there's going to come a day when he not only defeats and subdues them and throwing them into the lake of fire, but he's going to defeat and subdue Satan himself. Not yet into the lake of fire. That will come later at the great white throne judgment. But for now, in a bottomless pit. He's going to seize him and bind him. Verse 2. And he's going to banish him. Verse 3. And he's going to prevent him from even interacting with the world. Again, verse 3. Do you see it all there? He's going to bind him, verse 2, bound him for a thousand years. And then he threw him in the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. And just to be sure that we get this, he's explicit about it, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. He's going to be sealed in the bottomless pits. Restrained. Not just partially, but completely. Completely so. Including his demonic throng. Satan is going to be restrained, including his demonic throng. It includes his demonic horde. And I say that because when the New Testament writers refer to Satan, they most often refer to him as representative of all fallen angels. Representative of all the powers of darkness. Plus, that's the implication that the demonic throng is going to be restrained along with him. That's the implication of verses 7 to 10. After Satan is released for a little while at the end of the millennium. Released to do what? It says in verses 7 and 8. You can look at it as I speak if you'd like. He's going to be released to deceive the nations. He's going to be released for a little while to deceive the nations. Implying that it wasn't going on for the thousand years previous just like it says in verses 2 and 3. And that means the fact that it wasn't going on the deception, evil deception, during that thousand years of the millennium, that means that none of the powers of evil were present. Because that's what they do by nature. That's what demons live for. That's what they endeavor to do with every aspect and every moment of their lives. They endeavor to deceive people. It's how they steal, kill, and destroy under the leadership of Satan himself. So this restraint most likely includes his demonic throng, his demonic horde, all of which is a problem for those who hold an amillennial view. Because they say that Jesus is reigning from heaven right now, and therefore Satan is bound right now, unable to deceive the world, at least not fully, they say. It has to go part and parcel together. If Jesus is reigning right now, then Satan has to be bound right now. But that's contrary to reality, and that's contrary to the Bible. Reality, because we see manifestations of deep-seated evil deception all over the place, do we not? Like those who believe that it's perfectly okay to kill a baby in the womb. It's a deep-seated demonic deception for people to actually believe such a thing. Or 
How about those who believe that homosexuality is no different than heterosexuality? It's a deep-seated deception that can stem from nowhere else than Satan and his demonic throng. Or those who believe that the color of your skin determines your status in life. Whether you're white or black or anything else. Or the belief that men can be women and women can be men. Or that God is non-binary and Jesus had two daddies. Like some people believe those things. Some people actually believe them just like you and I believe the truth requiring a level of deception that's nothing short of satanic. I have no other plausible explanation for it. The Bible has no other plausible explanation for such deep-seated deception and falsehood. It's nothing short of satanic. And so to say that Satan is bound right now is contrary to reality. As much as I respect so many who hold that view, it's contrary to reality. And it's not getting better. It's not. Not a single one of you would stand up and be like, I think things are getting so much better in our world today. Like false beliefs and satanic deceptions are not diminishing. In fact, they're getting worse. Which poses a problem for the post-millennialist who believes that the gospel is going to so influence the world that nations and cultures will get better and better, holier and holier. Like that too is a denial of reality. Not that we shouldn't strive for such influence. Oh, we totally should. We should totally strive for the influence of the gospel. I mean, we've lived glory years in our country in days past for sure because the gospel has held sway over the leaders and the laws and the courts and so on. But, but like, like that ship has sailed. That ship has sailed. And it's certainly sailed in many other countries of the world. It's a denial of reality to say that things are getting better and better and even in terms of the scriptures, that they're going to get better and better. So it's not as though we shouldn't strive for such influence, but that we shouldn't put our hope in it or expect it. But the biggest problem in believing that Satan is restrained right now is that it's contrary to the Bible. It's contrary to the Bible. And we should always, always conform our thoughts to the Bible instead of the other way around. You say, Pastor, didn't I just hear you say that last week? You did, and you're probably going to hear me say it ad nauseum for the rest of my life. Because that is happening so, so much in church world these days, and I do not want it to characterize our church. We should always, always conform our thoughts to this instead of this to our thoughts. And so often we do it by default without even thinking about our thoughts certainly without even thinking about God's word. All that this would be so front and center in our minds and hearts, all that we would read it so much every single day and let it seep in in ways that we don't even know that it's seeping in so that our thoughts are conformed to the very likeness of Christ who gave us the word in the first place. First Peter 5, 8. 
thinking contrary. The Bible is contrary to the thought that Satan is bound right now. Peter said, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That doesn't sound like he's restrained. Nor does 1 John 5, 19 that says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And Revelation 12, 17 that says Satan makes war on those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's contrary to the, to the Bible to say that somehow Satan is bound. Or how about 2 Corinthians 4, 4? This one is particularly pertinent to an amillennialist who will say that, yes, Satan is bound so that he can't deceive the world. It's just that he's not completely bound because he deceives them in some ways, but he can't keep them from seeing the gospel. He can't keep them from receiving Christ. That, that's how they would parse it out. Except that 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, in their case, that is, in the case of those who are perishing, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's the ultimate deception, blinding people to the good news of Jesus. There's nothing partial about the binding. It's complete. Or it's not at all. And the reason we're to put on the armor of God, last one here. You ever thought about this? The reason we're to put on the armor of God, the armor of God, supernatural protection, the reason we're supposed to do that is because we fight against supernatural beings. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, the spiritual realm. Four ways of describing the same thing. Satan and his demonic throng. How, how can that be? How can it be that we wrestle against such supernatural beings if they're locked away in a bottomless pit. It's contrary to the Bible and it's contrary to reality to think that the millennium is part and parcel of this church age in which, in which we live. But let me leave with this. The thought of it just the thought of Satan's restraint. Just the blessed assurance of his future restraint. Just the certainty of it. Just like the certainty of you eating lunch in an hour or so. Just the certainty of you going to school in a day or so. Just the thought of it ought to increase our anticipation all the more. Satan will no longer 
tempt you. Satan will no longer try you. Satan will no longer be able to do anything to you that he does now. How good is that? And when you combine that with the rule and reign of Jesus, the chief shepherd, benevolent in every respect, and our reigning with him, when you combine all of that, our best days really are ahead. They really are. Let's pray. Lord, haste the day. I don't, I don't know what else to pray in light of these truths, God, other than Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come and raise us, change us, and, and rule us, we pray. Oh, we pray. Come and establish your kingdom on earth just as it is in heaven right now. Come and establish your kingdom on earth just as it, as it is in our hearts, just as it is in our church. Oh, Lord Jesus, come and reign, we pray. And in the meantime, Lord, should you tarry? Should you tarry for a day? Should you tarry for a year? Should you tarry for our lifetime or several generations? Oh, God, in the meantime, will you use these truths to buoy our ship and help us hold fast and hold out for the best days yet to come. We trust you in all of that, Lord. For your glory and our joy, we trust you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship the Lord.